Hey, it's Mark. Before we get started with this week's episode, I wanted to let you know that the dates have been set for the next Crosscut Festival. It's happening May 1st and 2nd, 2020, and we're looking for ideas about what we should talk about and who we should invite. So go to crosscut.com festival and give us your suggestions. Okay, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Crosscut Talks, a podcast replay of Crosscut's live interviews with the people who shape our world. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the news and politics editor at Crosscut. The LGBT rights movement has gained a lot of traction around the country, but there are still some places that remain unfriendly or unsafe. Often those places are in the more conservative parts of America. But transgender author and journalist Samantha Allen found something different when she traveled through Middle America in 2017. She discovered thriving communities and havens for people of all genders and orientations. Crosscut invited Allen to discuss her new book, Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States, as well as her journey from Mormon missionary to openly trans woman. Allen is an award-winning journalist who holds a PhD in women's gender and sexuality studies from Emory University. She was also the 2013 recipient of the Kinsey Institute's John Money Fellowship for Scholars of Sexology. In conversation with Alan is David Schmader. He's a Seattle-based writer and performer whose work often explores queer life. He was a writer and editor at Seattle Alt-Weekly The Stranger from 1998 to 2015, and has written several plays that were produced in Seattle and across the country. This discussion is sponsored by Comcast and Waldron. It was recorded on May 4th, 2019 at Seattle University as part of the Crosscut Festival. <laughs> Thanks. Hi, is your mic on? Hi, thank you Hi. for talking to me across this I know, it's unbridgeable goal. Um, I brought you some flowers. Oh, thank you. And I brought you some flowers to give to me. <laughs> Here's some flowers. Thank you. I picked them for you this morning. <sighs> These remind us that we're dying all the time. All right. Good morning. <laughs> Hi. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm overjoyed that you're We've, moderating like, this. Lovely email would have been great, but this is, we had some wonderful emails, but now this is real. Yeah. All right. Thank you for coming, everybody. Um, all right, this is Samantha's book. It is Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States. Um, how did you become the author of this book? I wrote it down, and then <laughs> I sent it to my publisher. They put it between this really thick cardboard. No. And so, <laughs> that all, it all worked for you. Oh, my God. But um, So I'm a, a reporter for the Daily Beast covering LGBT stories. Um, and sort of after the 2016 presidential election at a time when a lot of reporters were turning their attention to the middle of the country saying, I want to go interview the same Trump supporter in Ohio over and over and over again. I was like, yeah, I want to I go back to some of my favorite places in the middle of America too, but I want to interview LGBT folks and their allies who are making progressive change happen in their communities um, and show how sort of the queer center of gravity in this country is really shifting away from kind of the coastal traditional safe havens toward a lot of these communities in, in the middle of the country. And so in 2017, I set out on this two-month-long road trip from Utah to Texas 
Tennessee, Indiana, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Arkansas, um, just meeting and interviewing incredible LGBT folks. And you come from academia, too. That's That was how you started your career, right? Yes. Uh, if there are any PhD students in the audience, you know that your stipend is not terribly large. Uh, so I started freelance writing kind of midway through my doctoral dissertation, uh, which was in gender studies at Emory in Atlanta. Um, and, you know, I realized, hey, when, when you write stuff for news outlets, people actually read it. Meanwhile, I think like four people on earth have read my dissertation. So <laughs> that led to a career in, in journalism after academia and yeah and then you know uh, eventually like you just kind of feel this need to get away from your keyboard and do something longer in depth yeah. more time consuming um i'm sure everyone in the world would have preconceptions about heading into red states to interview lgbt people um what were yours and what were the biggest surprises for your preconceptions, if you had any? Yeah, so, I mean, I sort of knew from a lot of my firsthand experience that LGBT communities in red states could be very vibrant, warm, inclusive places. But I think the story of my 20s was the story of learning that lesson over and over again. When I came out as a transgender woman, I was living in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, going to grad school. And, you know, Atlanta's really progressive, large LGBT community, but still I was like, I'm in Georgia. Will it really be safe for me? It was 2012, kind of before a lot of media awareness around trans issues. But I came out and I discovered that Emory, you know, had gotten uh, things in place like trans-inclusive health insurance before like Harvard, Princeton, or MIT had gotten there. And <laughs> it was in large part thanks to um, a man named Michael Shutt who, you know, uh, moved back to Roswell, Georgia from DC uh, in the 90s and started all these amazing LGBT programs at universities in Georgia. And that's sort of the red state LGBT ethos is like, you know, you have to work really hard to get something done. And sometimes you end up outpacing a place like New York, uh, in the process. So I had that experience. Then I, I met all sorts of amazing friends in Johnson City, Tennessee, which is another place I went back to for the book. And then I met my wife in the elevator of the Kinsey Institute in Bloomington, Indiana. And, and that kind of really sealed it in for me of like, wow, the middle of the country is a really queer place. Um, yeah, so you know, I I sort of went in there with a thesis already kind of in my heart, uh, but even then I was surprised by the things that I found. You know, I was in the closet when I was a, a student at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah in the mid-2000s. Um, it was, felt like a very terrifying, scary place to be transgender. Uh, and then I, when I went back for the book, I found like an LGBT youth and family center across the street from the Mormon temple. And it was like, gosh, <laughs> things have changed. It was really surreal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a big thing that we kind of bonded in, of, that I loved about the book is I love a small town gay bar. And this is kind of a love letter to small town gay bars, or it's a through line of just the incredible community that pops up when there's a little bit of scarcity, when there's one room where there's, when there's one, a town with one gay bar, there are the gay truckers, the gay daughters of the American Revolution, gay dwarves, everyone. It's like that, it, the only time someplace like this, a city like this feels that way is maybe Pride Sunday. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like, we're over it all. Everyone has our little envelope bars that we go to and it's so effing sweet. 
yeah. when you find just a room full of a bunch of really happy queers. Yeah, yeah. Or the nightlife in, you know, can be really homogenized sometimes. Like I was in LA for the book festival a little while back and a friend took me on a West Hollywood bar crawl, like down that main, main track. And I was like, why are we even switching bars? It's the same thing in every bar. It's just like white gay men, drinks, dancing, like, why didn't we stay at the first one? Um, but yeah, like, in a, in a larger blue state city like, like New York or something like that, the nightlife scene can be really, like, taxonomic. It's like, here's where the bears go, and here's where the otters go, and here's where the northern sea otters go, uh, you know? Uh, and um, when you're in a town like Bloomington, Indiana, which has my favorite LGBT bar in the whole world, it's called The Back Door. It's only accessible. You made it sound so beautiful. I want to go so bad. It's uh, only accessible via an alleyway entrance. It has zebra print walls and a gilded portrait of Dolly Parton. And, um, <laughs> and because it's like the only game in town, everyone has to go there. And so it's, it's men, it's women, it's people of all races, genders, and everyone has to kind of share a space and you, you don't see enough of that kind of shoulder brushing anymore in a place yeah. like even here. You kind of need to be forced into it of like, oh, there's only one. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was your, you were telling me about your yeah, favorite. My big one is MJ's Cafe in Norfolk, Virginia, which is where my brother lives and my mom lived. Um, they serve breakfast, lunch, dinner, and are open till 2 a.m. for bar after that. Um, but the thing I loved is on Sundays, This okay, this is brilliant outreach. On Sundays, if you bring in a church program, you get 20% off your meal. <laughs> Isn't that, that is sweet. Oh, like, someone has to be the big person here, and I'm so glad it's the gay bar, you know? <laughs> I like a gay bar with food, too. And I also like, you know, um, like the back door, it's not just like, come here, get drunk, hang out, make out with somebody, go home with them. It's like, there are activities there. On a Tuesday night, yep. you can go, like, color and kind of chill out. Uh, you know, on Wednesday night, there will be a show. On Friday night, it will be a party. And, and it tries to accommodate everybody. Yeah, and I think I'm sure that MJ's is all ages, so that, a, you know, a queer kid could go there and not feel insane. Yeah. You know, there's so... Um, I get... Yeah, that came up in your book a lot of... of there was one... Was it the back door? There was one. It was a uh, wonderlust okay. in Jackson, Mississippi. I insist on yeah. this that we are that eighteen-year-olds can come here. They cannot drink, but they need to be able to be let in. Yeah, and the, what made that story like all the more moving to me? Uh, the, this is a wonderlust. It's the only LGBT nightclub in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, it's currently owned and operated by Jesse Pandolfo. She's a beautiful a woman from Boston who came to Mississippi, and she's not like crazy about Mississippi. She's not like, oh yes, I love Mississippi, but she knows how important this bar is to the community. Um, and gosh, like her first year of operating the bar, she was like paying for groceries with quarters like it was putting strain on her marriage because like you it's hard to operate those businesses at a profit but even then she was like I need to keep it 18 and over with like strict wristbanding for yep. drinks and that kind of thing and even though these 18 to 21 year old kids in, in Jackson like they're not paying customers they're not adding value to her business when it's operating at a loss she knew how important it was for like teen, older teenagers in Jackson to have a place to go when they came out um, yeah um, a big so you're, you 
you cross the country a lot in this book. And history happened while you're doing it. Like, that was all these really um, kind of bracing moments where you're like, oh, and that's the day Trump tweeted trans people out of the military. And, or that's the day the pulse shooting happened. Or that's the day, or the bathroom bills in Texas was a huge thing. Yeah. Um, but with the, the tweets in particularly, to have um, point blank trans folk response was really valuable from the book. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was driving from Texas to Arkansas when the, the tweets happened. And um, for anyone who needs to be filled in, it was, it was July 2017, and Trump tweeted just kind of seemingly out of nowhere, like, uh, you know, I'm going to ban all transgender people from the military because they're too much of a burden, too much of a cost, and it's going to impact our military readiness to allow trans service, even though trans folks were already serving and the issue had already been studied out and the impact was was non-existent that he was talking about. Um, but it was, it was devastating. My phone started ringing and texting and all that kind of stuff um, with friends. Uh, and, you know, I had met a lot of trans former former service members on, on the trip um, who just felt like really insulted by it. I mean, the military is the largest employer of trans people in the United States. I didn't know that. And so this is not just a military issue, it's an employment issue that the federal government is trying to exclude trans people from their largest employer. Um, and gosh, that night, by sheer coincidence, I I was scheduled to spend some time with Terry Don Wright. He's a, a Desert Storm veteran, uh, and she, you know, had a had a pretty rough experience in the military and just felt totally dehumanized by these tweets. And it, I don't know, it was it was maybe one of the most difficult moments of the trip because overall, I came away feeling really hopeful and optimistic about. LGBT acceptance, which only makes some of the stuff that's happening in DC on this national level jarring, all the more jarring, you know? Because you travel across Texas, folks there aren't like, oh, we need to keep trans people out of the bathrooms. There's no grassroots movement to keep trans people out of only bathrooms. Only the legislature, right? Yeah, it's, it's state legislators, it's anti-LGBT groups that need an issue to fundraise off of, it's DC anti-LGBT nonprofits that, you know, need an ax to grind. And yeah, it's, um, gosh, it's so disheartening to get that kind of ground level view of where LGBT acceptance is and where it's heading versus the kind of policies that we see coming from the Trump administration. Yeah, that, the, it was kind of a repeat thing when I read the book was something terrible would happen and then you would find someone who just said something that kind of solved it and lifted your spirit up of, and of just someone who was like, that's how it goes, we're going to keep fighting. I, the one, the, I keep thinking of that shirt in the rotunda of I fought for your right to hate me, Yeah. of just the strength of the people. I'm sure that uh, it was just a lovely way because you would take us through these really grim situations and then find someone who like, found their power and the, said something that made me hopeful about yeah. what's to come. I mean, I remember 
gosh, it was the the day of the Charlottesville riots. I had been watching the news and I was feeling really disheartened. And, uh, you know, I, I was tempted often while writing the book to just kind of like relax and not go out and do something, something gay every day was my motto. I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to treat this like a vacation. I'm writing a book, something gay every day. But there were days that were exhausting or, or, or scary that I just kind of wanted to relax and the day of Charlottesville was um you know a hard day to be plugged into the news but that night it was the first night I went to Wonderlust in Jackson Mississippi and it was like like a truly diverse like uh club in the middle of Jackson, Mississippi. And I had spent all day seeing these images of like division, hatred, white supremacy. And so then to kind of be in this place and see this really hopeful vision for a future, I think in a place where too few people go, so many people leave Mississippi, not enough people go there. Um, yeah, that was an interesting study in contrast. And I, I had to look for little glimmers of hope to keep me going because of the kind of stuff that was happening on the national stage. Yeah. Um, okay, now we're going to get into like travel and home and all these deeper okay. ideas that uh, at the end of the book, you kind of talk about your this feeling of like, and I'm, I'm going to be paraphrasing you, so correct me, but just like that there's a type of spirit that is always becoming and never lands or and this is esoteric. I'm going to get us there. Um, <laughs> I I felt that very much. I think it's kind of of a generational thing of being queer is it's a journey. Like I'm going to take us back to Dolly Parton. Wildflowers don't care where they grow. This thing of like where you're from does not matter. You will create yourself somewhere new and maybe you'll never stop. And that's that helped a lot of us, but it, it's tiring and you can feel like you don't have a home. And these people who stay put, the young people who stay in Jackson, are like, oh, no, I'm going to create a decent gay life for myself here um, is something that makes my heart sore and makes me f sore, not um, sore. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's a question at the end of that. Oh, well, yeah, it is. It's in your book where you would say, I hope that the next generation, like my book is irrelevant is, is made irrelevant by the progress made by the kids yeah it's a weird thing to hope for your own book to get outdated very quickly <laughs> obviously i would like it to continue to sell and please put it on your college <laughs> syllabus and all that kind of thing but yeah i mean when you look at you know i'm a i'm 32 i'm i'm sort of in the upper middle end of the millennial bracket i guess the millennials are currently the most openly lgbt generation in mm -hmm. history if you look at early polling data on like gen z like those kids are so queer it's like oh, oh my god like <laughs> you're going to take over the world um and that's really encouraging to see and you know i i end the book with a trip to my um to my five-year-old nephew in Tampa, Florida. I took him to the Mermaid Show at Wikiwachi, Florida. If anyone knows the Wikiwachi River, it's this <laughs> turquoise spring, and they do this um, like underwater mermaid show where they're like breathing through breathing tubes and Whoa. do dances underwater. It's amazing. But like my nephew has grown up with, you know, I'm I'm married to a woman uh, with like two aunties, and that's like totally normal to him. It's just like, oh, there's Auntie Corey, there's Auntie Samantha, like. That's it. Yeah. And by the time, you know, 
Jamie is president of the United States, LGBT life in this country is going to look really different than, than this sort of divides that we've seen. Yeah. All right, I'm checking my thing to make sure we're hitting all the things. Uh, well, this was just a personal thing. I had a very like methody experience of getting to know your book, where I I had the audio book and I listened to it while driving from El Paso to Pecos to Midland and back. Um, so it's just like I took an eight-hour car trip with you, and you were also talking about um, it's not Stuckies, it's the other Uckies. Buckies. Buckies. These are the. Does anybody know what a Buckies is? All right. <laughs> um, Samantha had some serious Buckies feelings that you should share with us all now. Yeah, so Bucky's is a gas station convenience store chain in Texas, but that that doesn't do it no. justice. Bucky's looks like if someone took a 7-Eleven and copy pasted it like 300 times. Like the you know when you park at a gas station you go into the food mart to get like a Diet Coke and some snacks or something and it's like the size of a studio apartment like at the Bucky's it's the size of like a Walmart when you walk in there um, the mascot is a, a beaver uh, and all of the billboards on the interstates in Texas scream at you about Bucky's and how clean their bathrooms are uh, <laughs> which is enticing and you know as a trans person I'm like Gosh, like, cis people care so much about bathroom cleanliness. I care about, like, bathroom safety, right? But um, Bucky, it also has, like, amazing beef jerky. Oh, right, the yeah. wall of beef jerky? Okay. Yeah, and it's just, um, gosh, it's, uh, it's the perfect introduction to Texas, I think. Don't go to Austin right away. Go to a Bucky's first, then go to Austin, and you'll... <sighs> You'll yeah. be properly introduced. That's that, and it's kind of tied to just how far everything is away from each other. So you do need like a little mini mall every three hundred miles in Texas, and so you find a Bucky's, and they have what you need. Um, all right, let me get in here. Let's talk Mormons. Sure. Um, it was. Uh, I mean, that was part of the book mostly because of your biography, like yeah. that you that that was you were raised LDS. Yes. And I married into an LDS family, so I'm super fascinated by it all. And um, I mean, my thing was we were we got married in California during Prop Eight or, or pre Prop Eight, um, and then Mormons did a big push with Prop Eight, and our mar our marriage wasn't invalidated. It just became like a novelty item or a commemorative plate. Like it, it exists, but they're not making anymore. And <laughs> So, but then we found out that relatives had donated to Prop 8, and then other relatives found out about that, and it, it ended up with like half the family leaving the church. Um, and that thing, which is kind of tied to your book of like learning lessons from people you didn't know you respected, and like the way Jake's LDS family responded to protect us yeah. was like a lesson to me of like, oh, I had categorized you as one thing, and you blew my mind with something else. Yeah. I'm glad you married an ex-Mormon. I might be biased, but I think we make great mates, you know? <laughs> One, proficient lovers. Just, <laughs> you know, my, my wife actually uh, dated an ex-Mormon before she met me, and she, she's always said, like, I needed someone with an equivalent amount of trauma to me, and ex-Mormons could always, <laughs> always provide that. Uh, but, hubba, hubba. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, the, the Mormon Church is in an interesting position where, so it was 2008, the Proposition 8 happened, this real push to make same-sex marriage illegal again in California. Um, and uh, a lot of top leadership in the Mormon Church was pushing members to be involved in that campaign, donate money to it. Uh, that oh, of, right. No, the home yeah. visits from elders of like, how much have you given? <laughs> like, it got creepy. Yeah. And a lot of uh, what happened was a lot of more progressive Mormons were really turned off by the aggressiveness of that push. A lot of folks left the church. And then there were folks who stayed in but were, said, I'm going to like be vocal about resisting this. Yep. And what are you going to do? Excommunicate me for like not giving money to Prop 8, right? Um, and what we've seen over the last 10 years is like, uh, gosh, a lot of younger Mormons especially, I don't know the precise figure, it might be close to 40%, support same-sex marriage now. So it, the church is in this really interesting position where the policies at the top level, which are propagated by men in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, very old leadership in the Mormon church, uh, are going to be increasingly at odds with what the membership is starting to feel about LGBT issues. Um, yeah, we we we're going to see, I don't know, the Methodist church had a really interesting kind of crossroads moment recently, and I would predict something similar to happen in Mormonism probably in the next 10 or 15 years. It, they could, I, Mormons could really solve some stuff about how to treat a gay kid. I mean, like, there's, being a good parent is so, it's so crucial to the Mormon experience as I know it, and that's to have this trap door where if your kid is this, you stop loving them is just a really cruel paradigm to put a mother in, and Mormon mothers deserve better, and I'm glad they're fighting for what they want. They, there's this group now called the Mama Dragons, and it's a group of Mormon mothers with LGBT kids who are like really vocally supportive <laughs> of their kids. I love that. I love that they chose the dragon. Um, a, a few Mama Dragons came to a book signing recently. I tried to draw a dragon in their books. It was not very good. <laughs> if you come to the signing, don't ask me to draw an animal. I'll try, but it won't be good. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, these, but these Mormon moms are so vocal, so supportive. Like, they're out there on Facebook posting their, you know, pictures and like trans ally, like, you know, um, profile frames and like talking to their church leaders and talking to other people at the church. I've, I, that was one of the big takeaways from the book for me was, you know, as kids are coming out as LGBT at younger and younger ages, parents are becoming allies sooner and it's bringing folks into the LGBT community, the greater LGBT community who might not have expected to ever be a part of it. Like one of my favorite interviewees, her name was Amber Briggle. She's in uh, like Dallas area in Texas and was like, I'm just like a white suburban mom in Dallas, like cisgender straight. Like I never expected to be a part of this community and until her son came out as transgender and now she's like, oh my gosh, I want to hang out with LGBT people all the time and get really involved in, in rights causes and lobbying and that kind of thing. It's really amazing to see what a lot of these parents are, are up to. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is more just off the cuff. What art is getting you through the Trump era? I ask everyone this. I'd ask everyone in the room this if I had time. Um, I am mostly reading books. I've heard of those. <laughs> that 
tell natural history through the lens of a specific animal. I really like when a book is like, you might not think much of the beaver, but <laughs> the beaver actually explains all of the 20th century. And I'm like, really? Tell me more. So I've been reading Eager, the beaver book, which has a great title. This Return of the Sea Otter, Buzz. I, I, and it's, it's weird. I, I, the, when folks ask me, I think they expect me to be reading a lot of LGBT books. And I'm like, no, I just want to know about the animals. <laughs> I, I think maybe that's where, I'm, my, where my depression is at my level of depression with the events is at I'm like let's let's uh, give the world back to the sea otter and the beaver and we had a good run at it yeah like how are how are you this is a t weird time to be alive i mean it's it's rough to watch stuff like the transmilitary ban go into effect as it did um, or recently there's this new proposed rule from the Trump administration to allow discrimination against trans people in a healthcare setting under the guise of religion. And that's, that's hard for me to watch. I feel like with same-sex marriage, there was this large push for it. It was able to enroll kind of the broader American public and in a way that, that I worry I'm not seeing that same support for trans rights all the time. And it's, it's hard to watch something like the trans trooping go into effect and then because the next day we're on to, you know, the next story about Mueller or something. It's a function of how oversaturated the news cycle is, but it's also a function of, of people needing to care and show more empathy toward trans folks. I know marriage had the... the great conservative framework of marriage. Yes. Love. Not like the radical framework of stop caring about gender, yeah. <laughs> which is a harder sell than like, this is a tradition we've had for as long as we've had humanity versus here's a new idea for you. Grow up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, gosh, love is love was like a great slogan because it appealed to this like universal thing that, and I think one of the great disservices that like anti-LGBT groups did is they made trans issues about bathrooms. They, they really got to this like lizard brain fear of uh, like a bathroom predator. And it's, it's been hard to take that conversation back. I, I think Laverne Cox has done like a brilliant job at, at, at doing that um, by saying like, look, this isn't about bathrooms. It's about public life. If you can't use the bathroom when you're in public, you can't be in public. So, uh, but that takes this reframing and anti-LGBT groups in North Carolina and all over the country were so effective at making the conversation about bathrooms that we got to take it back to some sort of broader human principles. Um, and it's hard to do that. I, I was like, if you were in charge, what marching orders would you give humanity about how to like, snap to on trans issues? Uh, you know, sometimes I wonder what anti-LGBT groups think is going to happen. Like they, they, they're, they're trying to position trans issues as a, a fad or something. And it's like, do you really think that you can put this like genie back in the bottle? Like mm -hmm. you can't. Trans folks have always been around. Trans folks, the history of trans folks is the human history. Um, and it's, um, gosh, the, and that to me is the message of, of the book and the message I would hope 
everyone takes away is like, LGBT people are everywhere. You can't stop us. We're just going to keep being born. You can't reverse that trend. You can only learn to accept and love us, or you can try and hate us. Um, but you, we're not going to like wake up one day and be like, oh, that was a silly little fad we all followed where we slept with the people we wanted to sleep with and we were the people we wanted to be. But like, you're right. Let's go back to our white picket fences. And yeah. Yeah. And a big trap of the bad old days was um, self-hatred. And I think there's enough context now that hopefully that won't be such a natural kind of where you, you just absorb the homophobia and yeah. take it as a fact. And uh, that is kind of like, uh, hopefully a relic of what I call the bad old days. And um, I have this thing where I can almost get paralyzed with gratitude about the progress we've made, where I'm so glad that I, I'm not in the gulag anymore. I'm delighted by everything that's not gulag. Uh, but then there are young people who are like, I was never in a gulag and I have energy to be mad about all sorts of things you don't even know about. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I hanging out with like like LGBTQ kids was uh, one of the most fun parts of the trip. I did the most of that in Provo, Utah, at this uh, LGBT Youth and Family Center that was across the street from the Mormon Temple in Provo. Um, gosh, I felt so ancient, <laughs> even at even at the you know I think young age of 32 um, but <laughs> I, I felt a bit like that you know that Steve Buscemi gif where it's like how do you do fellow kids that's how I felt hanging out with these LGBTQ kids because one they weren't like internalizing that self-hatred that I had until I was like 24 years old and two they they knew all this vocabulary that like I had learned like a couple years ago and they knew it from the internet, they knew it from Tumblr, they knew it from their friends. And, and it's just so incredible to, to see that. It at once makes you feel like envious of like a childhood that you never had, but then you've got to kind of swallow that envy down and be like, I'm glad <laughs> that you get to live this life and no. you get to change the world. And yeah, it's, it's a, where you're like, okay, I want everything better for you. I don't, you don't have to, it's kind of a parent, it's a divide I've seen in parenting where there's a school of old school parenting where it's like, if I survived it, you survived it. And then a new school of parenting where like, I will protect you from everything shitty that happened to me to the best of my abilities. Yeah, I don't want to be the generation of trans folks who looks at these kids and it's like, back in my day, I had to wait <gasps> six months to start hormones. And <laughs> you kids these days, just go to your informed consent clinic and... <laughs> get it for free like I'm not you know I'm not gonna be be like that I'm just yeah I'm so I, I think it's rough when marginalized groups kind of try to eat their young that kind of thing and yeah, yeah. it's a losing game <laughs> um I think we're gonna transition to Q&A that sounds we're great. a little early but I think this is the, we'll have questions okay this involves this technology hold on oh um if you want to ask questions, you can go to slido.com, enter the event code CrossCut, select LaRue, and um, ask your question. All right. Question number one. How does a trans woman of color's experience differ in those red states, and how can we amplify their voices? Yeah. So. Uh, you know, I was really aware of like the privilege that I had traveling through the country as a white trans woman. Um, I, and 
that I came into contact with, uh, I, I interviewed several LGBT people of color in the book who really kind of opened my eyes to how our experiences of these places differed. So in Texas, I met, uh, she actually wore that shirt you mentioned, the I Fought for Your Right to Hate Me shirt. Her name is Nicole Lynn Perry, um, a black trans woman, army veteran, or a uh, or maybe a Navy SEAL veteran. I need to, I need to get the branches right. But yeah, you know, she um, she has a very different experience of Texas than I did. I could feel more comfortable. I could feel safer, um, and because of you know the intersections of identity that she sat at, uh, Texas didn't feel that safe. She's since moved um, out here, actually, okay. and um, you know. I, I think we need to be really aware of the ways that even, even within the LGBT community, these other axes of identity can change an experience of a place. Um, yeah, and I, I would just say to amplify voices, the, the, what, what I tried to do, and I don't claim I did it perfectly in the book, was interview as many people of color as I could and, and say and draw attention to the fact that uh, I had a much easier time traversing the country yeah. than someone else might. Yeah. All right. As a writer, how do you open spaces for queer people of color in a social activist space dominated by white individuals? As a writer, how do you open spaces for queer people of color in a social activist space dominated by white individuals? Yeah. So, I mean, I can speak to this just in the context of, of journalism, which is my industry. And uh, that's just, for me, the number one thing I try to do is connect LGBT writers of color with editors that I've worked with when they, when they want an article uh, from me um, or they're looking more generally, I try to say, hey, why don't you reach out to this person for, mm -hmm. for that? Uh, and yeah, within my specific field, that's, that's what I try to do. That's, I mean, giving yourself time to actually look seems to be the big things. When it's a rush, that's when you're like, who do I know? Like. And Facebook is amazing. Like if you are, I've, a couple times where I was assigning things, I was like, I need a trans writer, put it on Facebook. Like from around Canada, from ever, just like you can find the writers if you take the time yeah. and put in the energy and don't like schedule it. Give yourself a month to find someone instead of like, oh, my friend does that. You know, that's yeah. how we wind up with a million white people who all know each other running everything. Yeah, and journalism is so white that folks, editors who are on this short timeline who are just like, I want someone, like, 99% yep. of the time, if, if they do that, if they don't kind of dive into a deeper well of, of freelancers, of writers, um, or even in hiring decisions, if they yeah. don't take the time to do a more exhaustive search, it ends up just perpetuating the, yep. the whiteness of the field. And it feels natural, which is gross. Yeah. Um, Hope that helped. Um, all right. You mentioned experience in Utah. How can LGBTQIA plus communities pers oh, persevere and coexist with strict religious communities? Yeah. Um, so this, this was new to me in Utah because um, my experience leaving the Mormon church was very black and white. It was like you're either in or you're out. You're either a part of the community or you're not. And after I left the church, a lot of Mormons didn't want to spend time with me anymore because me being around them would kind of, I don't know, trigger some faith crisis for them or something like that. Or they 
felt it was sinful to hang out with me or something like that. And especially, you know, since coming out as trans, like that, that effect has amplified even within my own extended family, I'd say. Um, but when I went back to Utah um, to encircle this LGBT Youth and Family Center, one of the things I really admired about them was they have this unofficial motto or slogan, it's, it's no sides, only love. And so they're, they're kind of agnostic on the question of, uh, should you be in the church or not? So when I was hanging out in Circle, this was brand new to me, there were ex-Mormons and Mormons, you know, straight Mormons, L LGBT ex-Mormons, hanging out together, spending time, no major faith crises were being triggered just by like the hanging out together and having lunch together and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but that's rare and that's hard. And I did meet youth there who had been kicked out of Mormon homes still and who were homeless because of that. So, gosh, the divides are still there. We need to build more things like Encircle that create a space for people to coexist in some way. I'm, I'm old enough. I'm like, ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, They'll figure, if they want to be friends with us, they'll figure it out. Um, but I also like, you know, giving them 20% off their brunch. So, um, yeah. All right. Living in a blue progressive state, what can we do to help trans residents of red states other than encouraging them to move? Well, that's, that's one of the messages that I hope the book leaves you with, dear questioner, is that there are <laughs> LGBT hubs and safe havens popping up all over the country. Uh, if, and, you know, a place like it, telling someone to move, that's a tall order given how much cities like on the coast cost. It's tremendously expensive to live here. San Francisco, it's impossible to live there unless you uh, own a rocket car or something like that. Uh, and you know, like New York, forget about it. So a lot of LGBT people, something like 4 million LGBT people almost live in the South. And, and that's not uh, you know, a decision that those folks make based off of how LGBT accepting the South is, because on paper it's not very accepting. It's a decision that people make because they want to be near family or because it's where they can afford to live or simply because they like it there. Um, so I, what we've seen is the percentage of LGBT population in cities like New York, San Francisco, staying pretty stable as a percentage of the overall population. Whereas you go to a place like Norfolk, Virginia, St. Louis, Salt Lake City, the percentage of the population that's identifying as LGBT in those places over the last 10 years is skyrocketing. They're building community. They're getting local laws passed that can shield them from some of the stuff at the state level. Um, so yeah, I would kind of reframe the question and say, don't tell them to move. Uh, <laughs> donate money and, and resources to uh, local trans groups in these places. Almost every greater metro area in these places has some sort of small trans support group. Yeah. All right. Oh, this here's a nice one. Whose work would you like to shout out or highlight? Who do you follow? Who do I follow? I follow you now, <laughs> author of Weed the User's Guide. True. I, I have never partaken, so I'm reading Weed the User's Guide with great interest. Your time will come. <laughs> You're an adventurer. 
Um, gosh, uh, I would shout out this great graphic novel by Michelle Perez called The Pervert that um, talks about the experience of trans sex work in, in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. Um, so go check out The Pervert by Image Comics. Yay. Um, and for me, have you seen that gif of um, Glenn Close noticing Billy Porter at the Oscars? That's the only thing I like. That's my favorite novel. It's my favorite movie. It's everything. Um, and it's just Glenn Close having a facial expression of, or 10. Maybe. All right. Um, <laughs> what's that? Go watch a Glenn Close movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, from your interviews and trips, how do experiences differ for trans folks who comply with cis heteronormative gender norms versus those who don't slash can't? Mm. So, I mean, questions a bit about like yeah like assimilating to a broader culture can can grant you privileges access that kind of thing um whereas there are folks who still very much feel like on the outside um and i would say for that latter group a hugely important thing is getting out of a more rural area to a, a urban place um, getting out of like, you know, rural parts of Texas to Austin, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's just quality of life and basic safety. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, because you, while I think the book is a helpful one, I, just in terms of like more of these hubs popping up, the it can still take a while to get to one if you're in a more rural part of a huge state like Texas. And mm -hmm. I know that LGBTQ folks, especially folks who are uh, like really visibly LGBTQ or, or like are more radical in their presentation, like uh, for them, a rural place can feel really unsafe, yeah. and you're two hours away from the nearest city. And uh, yeah, my like heart goes out to folks in that situation because it's so important. I think one of one of the only ways that we're seeing LGBTQ folks surviving in those like extremely rural parts of the country is through that kind of assimilation to a broader cultural norm. Yeah, um, I think we have time for one more. Or okay. If you had five minutes to speak to the whole world, what would you say? What would I say? I would want to ask the whole world questions. Yeah. I wouldn't want to say things to them. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm a writer. I would want to put down a tape recorder and say, whole world, what's up? What's going on? <laughs> I would ask the whole world if you could be any animal with any superpower, <laughs> what combination would you choose and why? And then I would listen to seven billion people say the answer to that question at once. <laughs> and it'd be the beautiful sound. Oh, I believe this is it. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Talks. This week's episode was recorded by Resty Bacall and produced by Sarah Bernard. Audio from the Crosscut Festival was recorded by Seattle Theater Group. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And for the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And just a reminder to save the date for the next Crosscut Festival, May 1st and 2nd, 2020. To learn more, go to crosscut.com festival. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>